Welcome to Sunday Sermons and other recordings from the Unitarian Universalist Church of Davis, California. Please visit our website at www.uudavis.org for further information. So come, come, whoever you are, you are welcome here. No matter what your age, your size, the color of your eyes, your hair, your skin, welcome. Whether you come alone or with others, you're welcome in this community of religious seekers. No matter whom you love, our congregation is a place of welcome. Whatever your abilities and how you move through this world, you are welcome. If you come with laughter in your heart or tears in your eyes, you are in good company here. We are ready to build a world of fairness and justice, and some of us also need encouragement to rebuild our lives. There is space for both within this community. So come with an open mind, prepared to understand more completely, and a loving heart, ready to both be nurtured and challenged with hands that are willing to give and receive. You are indeed welcome here. If this is your first time here, you will ho- we hope you will stop by our welcome table in the social hall so we can get to know you. Here you will find a community of caring and sharing. This morning, you are invited to light a chalice at the back of the sanctuary and write in the milestone book. If you wish, we'll add your joy or sorrow to this morning's pastoral prayer. Or the caring corner in our bulletin. Please let us know if you would like to connect with a minister or a member of our caring team. And that information you can just check when you make your uh, comment. To acknowledge all that's being held by the people in this congregation, all the sorrows, we light a chalice. Each person comes to this space with sorrows. And we also light a pillar candle for the joys. The joys in the world and the joys in our own lives. And now we begin. We begin with some music. So let there be a prelude. The following words are inspired by writings from Annie Dillard. There aren't many places where we are encouraged to bring the fullness of who we are. We are invited to come as grace finds us, but not remain unchanged for the better. Now, I want to invite Cyrus Crawford down to light our chalice, and he is going to get some help from his dad, Peter. I understand Cyrus is a third grader at the Montessori School, and I think it's wonderful that he's reached out to us and wanted to light the chalice. So thank you very much, Cyrus. We light this chalice with the hope that we, too, may find a container for all of who we are, a holy chalice able to hold our courage and our fear, our gifts and our flaws, our joy as well as our pain. May we glimpse again what it means to be whole. May we find that peace of knowing that no part of us needs to hide. So now we're going to be putting out some chairs, and it's for a good reason. One, two, three, four... And we've got a story here. 
story about Martin Luther King Jr. And we have three volunteers. And would those volunteers come up and take a seat? So we have Billy in the first chair. We've got, I think, Delfina is in the next chair. Am I right? Okay. Then April. So we're going to start from this end. And you'll see that there's a fourth chair there. And it needs somebody in it. We intentionally left one chair empty so that there could be a volunteer who might like to come up and read. Um, They'll be reading a story they had not read before, but okay, here comes Donna. And so you'll see it says additional leader, and that's going to be you. So the story will begin here and proceed. Martin Luther King Jr. was one of America's greatest leaders. He was a powerful speaker, and he spoke out against laws which kept black people out of many schools and jobs. He led protests and marches demanding fair laws for all people. Martin Luther King Jr. was born on January 15, 1929, in Atlanta, Georgia. Martin's father was a pastor. His mother had been a teacher. Martin had an older sister, Willie Christine, and a younger brother, Alfred Daniel. And Delfina. In Atlanta, where Martin lived, and elsewhere in the United States, there were white-only signs. Black people were not allowed in some parks, pools, hotels, restaurants, and even schools. Blacks were kept out of many jobs. (laughs) Martin learned to read at home before he was old enough to start school. Through his childhood, he read books about black leaders. Martin was a good student. He finished high school two years early and was just 15 when he entered Morehouse College in Atlanta. At college, Martin decided to become a minister. April. In 1954, Martin Luther King Jr. began his first job as a pastor in Montgomery, Alabama. Next year, the next year, Rosa Parks, a black woman, was arrested in Montgomery. She had been sitting just behind the white-only section on the bus. When the seats in the section were taken... The driver told her to get up so a white man could have her seat. Rosa Parks refused. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. led a protest. Blacks throughout the city refused to ride the buses. Dr. King said, There comes a time when people get tired of being kicked about. The bus protest lasted almost a year. When it ended, there were no more white-only sections on the bus. Dr. King decided to move back to Atlanta in 1960. There he continued to lead peaceful protests against white-only waiting rooms, lunch counters, and restrooms. He led many marches for freedom. The next year, in 1964, Dr. King was awarded one of the greatest honors any person can win, the Nobel Peace Prize. The country was changing. New laws were passed. Blacks could go to the same schools as whites. They could go to the same stores, restaurants, and hotels. White-only signs were against the law. 
So we know that there continue to be many problems about race. One of the issues that Martin Luther King Jr. cared strongly about was housing. And so if he were alive today, I have to believe that one of his great concerns would be the homeless situation in our country. We do need to keep hearing the story about his life, but we are encouraged as ministers to not simply focus on that life, but to bring his issues into our contemporary time. And so that is what we are doing today when you hear about homelessness. And certainly uh, you will have an eye-opening experience when you hear about the report from the current administration on the state of homelessness in this country. So thank you so much for volunteering um, and for getting this script just yesterday and making it a story for us. And so we sing the song that tells us what we do wish for our children. Oh, my. Just This Small Piece, a theme that you will hear throughout the morning. Written by Martin Luther King Jr., letter from the Birmingham jail, from the book Struggle That Changed a Nation. In a real sense, all life is interconnected and interrelated. All are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Although homeless is a recent term, the conditions have been with us for a long time. Vagabond, squatters, street people, and hobos are sprinkled in history, including the Bible. It is clear that, a major, major, that major social, political, and economic upheavals have huge effects on the numbers of homeless. It is also clear society's overall attitude toward homeless has been primarily negative. A homeless person is commonly characterized as lazy, dirty, shiftless, untrustworthy, and likely to commit crimes. As societies evolved, we developed different solutions for the homeless, and most was criminalizing it. For example, in 1383, the English poor laws were established. If someone could not show they could support themselves, they could be jailed. You've probably heard the term debtor's prison. 
Or they could spend three days on those delightful things that we call stocks. If you remember the pictures of New England and people with their, you know, held in wood. Uh, England shipped many convict vagabonds to the American colonies. That probably sounds great now, but back then, uh, in those days, it wasn't fun to come to the American colonies. Speaking of shipping the homeless out, that seemed to be the approach that a lot of U.S. cities are taking today. Let's move the homeless out of town. Another approach was to force the homeless to work by establishing workhouses. There was also a history of trying to manage homelessness in a positive way. There are records from the 1500s of the English government providing for vagrants and training for them for a profession rather than to punish them. The first New York City rescue mission was founded in 1872. My main takeaway from reading about the current homeless situation is, like many other important societal problems, homelessness is not new. And the solutions applied to solve them are also not new. I have to admit, homelessness and the homeless are uncomfortable for me to confront. I rationalize not thinking or doing much about it by telling myself the problem is too big. Maybe a more productive approach is for one for me to find a small way I can help out, knowing that if many others did the same thing, this too big problem might become more manageable. As Cliff and I prepared for this service, I heard from members and friends of this congregation. They mentioned family members or friends who are homeless. And some of us have been without shelter or at risk right now. The service is about that inescapable web of mutuality. It isn't about an us or a them. As you listen, you may catch a glimpse of someone you know or even some aspects of your life. But the stories we tell today are about people we have created from statistics, from government reports, and stories from helping professionals about the homeless they have helped. Through the course of this sermon, we'll share four stories of people who live on our country's streets. And again, after the service last time, people uh, forgot that these people were not real and said, where are these people? And I said, they are in the statistics. But they are on our streets and under our bridges in parks and cars and shelters. We are caught in an inescapable web of mutuality. The White House released a report on the state of homelessness on December 11, 2019, and I thought, oh, good, just in time for my sermon. I'm so happy. They're so thoughtful. It defines the homeless as a person who lacks a fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence. And the report gives the current administration's answers to important questions. And these questions are what I drew from what they reported. Who are the homeless? What is the nature of their character, which is when our theology comes into play? We have very different answers for what is the nature of their character. And how can they be motivated to better their lives? Again, our theology informs us and informs the current administration. 
Over half a million people are homeless on a single night in the United States, and I want to say that very quickly they had to um, put a disclaimer on that number because the number is probably quite a bit higher because the population is fluid and their counting leaves something to be desired as well. 47% of the country's homeless are found in California. So we are seen by the administration as one reason why their numbers are so poor. The government report attributes many reasons for the high rate of homelessness in California, including moderate weather that allows people to live outside and survive. Um, but you, and you have to really keep reading in this very extensive report to, to start to see the bias. Mid-report, the reasons for increased homelessness also include the number of shelters provided, if you have shelters, they will come. And this actually is a quote. Um, a few beds on the floor of a center and a few will come. Build a whole shelter and the numbers will increase. And the authors of the report say that higher quality shelters increased homelessness. So just let that sit for a minute. And at first I was thinking, oh, good, isn't that great? You know, there are more people coming to the shelters. But how the authors are interpreting that is that it's causing the homelessness, and their numbers look very poor, you see. In Portland, um, a friend of mine is working on apartments for those who are homeless um, for a permanent shelter, and she was ecstatic because... They are absolutely beautiful, and they are painted with colors that are called anti-trauma colors so that people feel at peace and feel at home there. So apparently Portland is doing a lot to cause homelessness with using anti-trauma paint colors. Even when the shelter serves as a transition for more permanent housing or services, this was interpreted as drawing those who are homeless and increasing the numbers even higher. Their interpretation is that people are drawn to these programs to take from the government. What else is the government for? Help me with this. To take from the government and from you the citizens of this country. The housing programs counteract, they say, a plan to end homelessness. And I just tried to get my mind around that, and it, it's very difficult. Ben Carson, the HUD secretary with the Trump administration, has been quoted from this report by the Washington Post and the New York Times. I found his quote everywhere. Compassion. He's redefining compassion, so pay attention. Compassion is getting a person to be self-sufficient. People allowed to sleep in the open have less motivation to seek out resources. The Trump administration, it continues, is wary of policies that enable people who are struggling. 
The solutions recommended include increased police force, and I want to be very clear that um, in many cities we are working well with the police, and so they are really supportive, and in other cities not so much. But it's given as a solution is to put money into the increased police force and dealing with drug crisis and crime. Sounds a lot like crackdowns. Cliff and I have limited experience with those who are homeless. It has been many years since I've been with you um, and my previous church in an urban congregation. The lives that we will share with you in the course of this service are among four specific populations who are frequently found among those who are homeless. They are not the only homeless. They just happen to have four Profiles where they have many numbers of this profile among the homeless. And we count on your imagination added to their stories and your true compassion added to what you hear. I joined the Army when I was 19 with little life experience outside high school, no immediate prospects for a career, and from a home where the family didn't get along very well. Once with my troop, I developed a strong feeling of camaraderie. Suddenly, I was a valued team member. We learned quickly that we were totally dependent on each other. The depth of trust that developed, knowing that we might face life or death situations on a daily basis was unbelievable. Boot camp taught me that the military breaks down the self, the individual, and replaces it with a group ethic that accepts tasks and routines with a yes, sir. Our training had to toughen us. We had to be able to suppress our natural instinct to run from danger, to endure extreme physical hardship, to support the team no matter what, to be able to take a human life if necessary. What a shock it was to be in the service one day and next day after discharge have to come back to ordinary life with no job, daily routine, or support network. Normal was an alien concept. Normal had been the intensity of battle or anticipated battle, not standing in a grocery store aisle trying to decide what kind of milk to buy. Plus, many of my comrades have experienced horrific trauma in battle that needs much time to care to be and care to be processed. Our needs are overwhelming. But unfortunately there is no boot camp at the end of military service to help me re-enter society. So here I am homeless due to a cascading series of events after getting out of the service. I didn't see it coming. It happened so fast. A lost job, inability to pay the cost of my apartment, no family to bail me out. I now spend my days and sometimes much of the night just surviving, looking for something to eat and a safe place to sleep. I have no time to seek out help to find a job, get counseling, or find medical attention for health problems that seem to be coming more and more. I feel an enormous shame and anger at myself for letting this happen. I feel invisible to the rest of the world. I have a growing desire to self-medicate with alcohol and maybe some drugs to endure all of this. I have lost the trust in those around me, and I just want to be left alone. I am very worried I am going down the slippery slope of not wanting to be saved.
Hi, I'm Cheney, and I'm 15 years old. It's been a really hard year for me. My dad left a couple of years ago, and it's just me and Mom. And she's always busy with something, usually working, and that's kind of like I'm not here. So if I come home late or leave early, I don't don't really think she notices. I wonder if she really cares. You know, I discovered recently, I'm, I'm sure of it, I'm gay. I'm gay. But, I, you know, I told her about it, and, and she said, well, that's, that's interesting. And then she didn't say anything else. So I just went to my room, and I locked the door. We don't talk about it. We don't really talk anyway. And I'm so alone. I, I really don't know who to trust. My friends make fun of people they know who are gay, and I'm not going to tell them. And I'm not telling the teachers or the people in the office either. You know, they're probably just a lot like my mom. But I did tell one person, though. Somebody at school saw that I was really upset, and she really cared. And so I told her my secret, and she said she'd be my real friend. She told me there's a motel where girls can stay who need a different kind of home away from their parents. And so tonight, I have found another place to stay. And everything is going to change for me. I just want to get away from my mom. My friend says we'll be with people who will really listen to us. And we can be a family. And I'd like that. Maybe they'll believe in me. I don't know where she gets her money for the room and the food. She said there's going to be pizza tonight, but it doesn't matter. I'm meeting her at the McDonald's parking lot tonight at 11. My mom will be sorry. I think think she'll be sorry. But I'm going to start my new life. And I'm looking for somebody to trust. So one of the identified groups is the veteran, and the other group is the youth. 300,000 children are at risk in the United States every year, and that's slightly less than the population of the city of Stockton. Imagine if Stockton was only youth. One-third of the children who run away are approached by a sex trafficker within 48 hours. And the average age is 15 years old. Those who are LGBTQI are overrepresented among those youth and are often picked on by other kids on the streets or even in the shelters. So they are more often found on the streets and are most often then picked up by sex traffickers. A quote that surfaced among teens who had run away was, if one person had believed in me and my capacity, maybe I would not be here. A Unitarian Universalist colleague, um, Reverend Forrest Gilmore, works at Shalom Community Center for those who are homeless in Indiana. And about the time when Ben Carson's comment about compassion was circulating, and interestingly enough, when I communicated with him and asked for permission to use this, he had not heard that quote by Ben Carson about compassion. So here are his words. 
There's a strange myth that appears as common sense to some that if you deprive impoverished people of food and shelter, they will take action to end their poverty themselves. That is the very gift of food, that the very gift of food and shelter prevents people from changing their life circumstances. They call this enabling. But I would ask these people with all sincerity how anyone could improve their circumstances without food or shelter. Could you, I ask them? People in poverty often have many challenges to deal with. Sometimes their struggles appear unpleasant or even threatening to those of us not dealing with those struggles. Needles or litter or panhandling or uncomfortable behaviors or whatever. When some of us see those struggles, we make false assumptions that food and shelter cause those struggles. Correlation, he writes, is not causation. An emergency room doesn't create sick people. A homeless shelter or soup kitchen doesn't create poverty. Be better, he writes. Stop torturing struggling people with judgment and bigotry and hate. Love. He quotes Greg Boyle, who started the Homeboy Industries, which is a really successful gang rehabilitation and reentry program in L.A. And Greg Boyle writes, Here is what we seek, a compassion that can stand in awe at what the poor have to carry, rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it. Here is what we seek. A compassion that can stand in awe at what the poor have to carry, rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it. Unitarian Universalists believe in the inherent worth and dignity of all humanity, and we would choose to see people as whole rather than broken, raise up hope more than hopelessness, love over hate, a preference for this compassion of awe, over punitive judgment that condemns and assumes people's primary motivation is to take more than their share. We would seek complex, interrelated solutions that draw from many sources, just as our theology draws from many sources. Another person enters the room. A few years ago, when I told my family and friends I was moving in with Henry, they said I shouldn't do it. I told them they didn't know what they were talking about. Sure, he frightened me sometimes, but he was so kind afterward. The first time, it was because I didn't prepare his favorite meal the way he liked it. He promised he'd never threaten me again. He loved me. He was especially kind to my kids, and so I forgave him. He made enough money for both of us, so I left my job. Henry loved me so much that he wanted me to be at home so we could have every moment together. So we stopped going out with friends. It was more comfortable just to be together, you know, as a family. And besides, my friends, they just weren't comfortable with him. And then we moved to a small town, and I didn't know anyone. And the kids had to start a new school, but that was all right. Henry seemed happier for a while. It seemed that every few days I did something wrong. He broke dishes. I opened the closet to find my favorite shirt ripped with a knife. He threatened to hurt our pets. 
I try to make everything perfect, but I never got it right. And he'd say, if you ever try to leave, I know where I'll find you and the children. I believed him. And one day I overheard my children playing in their room, and my child said to their doll, don't ever try to leave. If I find you, you'll be sorry. So they had seen enough to figure it out. I have no job. I will not go back to my friends. I can't bear to tell them about my life and my family. I'm afraid they're going to ridicule me. But I will find the courage to make it right for my children and myself. They're here in the car with me. I've driven to Nevada, and this car is our home now. I didn't realize I was mentally ill. I know that this happens for some in my condition. Sure, I was having trouble focusing at work. My thinking seemed clouded, and sometimes I did not use good judgment. But it didn't seem like a problem to me. However, I ended up losing my job, and eventually my marriage broke up. I wasn't seeing things the same way others around me did, so I withdrew from my friends and family. Things were cascading out of control like a bad dream. I did not have enough money to pay for the rent. Before I knew it, I got evicted. Here I am, homeless. It turns out, not having a home made my mental health even worse. I feel people watching me, talking about me. Sometimes I hear voices telling me things. I avoid people, although this is hard to do on the street. However, like a Band-Aid on a cut that won't heal, underneath things are festering. While I have the same needs as other homeless, my mental issues make me the lowest homeless on the totem pole. I get picked on and robbed by other homeless. When I yell at others for doing this, I end up having more than my share of run-ins with the police. I wait, dreading what horror might happen next. A few times, I've cut my arms with a knife to distract me from the horrible negative thoughts and emotions I have. Drug and alcohol are another escape for me. I need help from a support system that will be there anytime and all the time. I need help from people I can trust. This is one of the biggest hurdles to overcome. This is my biggest problem. Who do I trust? In reading about people's lives and the many solutions for bringing safe housing and dignity to those who are the most vulnerable, trust was the common theme in all of them. The question from the person who hoped to leave a life of trauma on the street was, who is trustworthy? And there were many ways to begin finding that trust. Dr. Um, Kershaw is an internist at the University of California in San Francisco, and she has spent two decades researching the causes and consequences of homelessness. And currently, her job is finding solutions to homelessness that are not currently known and spreading the word about what has been proven to be successful. And one success includes something that we will have soon here in our community, something that Marty West has spoken with us about for months, called Housing First, 
And I also want to add that our own interfaith rotating winter shelter falls into this category as well. It gets people off the street so they no longer need to fear for their lives. And for Paul's Place or Housing First, they are given permanent affordable residence with a variety of social uh, supportive services. And Housing First recognizes that having a home and food allows people the chance to begin to make other changes. And so they begin to accept mental health assistance, drug treatment, counseling, employment coaching. She reported that 85% of the people with the most complicated problems were housed and remained housed. Because of this newfound stability in the residents' lives, tens of thousands of dollars were saved in emergency services and shelter costs. And the government report would tell you otherwise. But there's documentation that supports this statement. So who are you going to believe? This approach is what fits the theology of Unitarian Universalism, that all are worthy of hope and respect and love. There's an assumption of dignity of every human being and that people wish to know themselves and to be known as people of worth. That we do believe in a compassion of awe at what others carry and not judge them. And when we hear others' stories, judgment is worthless. It is worthless. The fate of others, we believe, connects with our own in that interdependent web. And finally, that goodness is the direction that our spirit leans, especially when others believe in us and others expect it of us. If you have not signed up to assist this shelter, which supports our Unitarian Universalist values, I encourage you to go to the table and see what are the tasks, small and large, that remain to be done. This is our last week to sign up. And it is also an opportunity for everyone to know that your families can be involved in working with the shelter And next week, also when we unload the um, beds and other supplies for the shelter here on Sunday. So if you're interested, please go to those tables that are over by the windows and speak with Pat Moore Pickett. May we bring the values of Unitarian Universalism and not pass by. I will not pass by on the other side. Please join together. Amen. And blessed be. I invite you into a time of prayer and meditation. Thanks so much. We often rush about in this world, and we really rarely take the time to be quiet together, to gather the Spirit be aware and grateful for the sound of our own life breath and the living people who surround us. So I invite you into that experience now as we remember those who have asked for our caring thoughts and our prayers. 
and we open our hearts to those among us who are caregivers for those they love. Their lives always have their loved one at the center of their existence, and may they receive the support and dignity that they give to others in equal measure. For those who walked in the Women's March yesterday, raising up issues of immigration and reproductive rights and climate change, we stay strong in the presence of others. And for those among our own congregation who have been homeless and for whose family members have lived without safe shelter, none of us are statistics. All of our stories are unique and tender. May hearts and lives be healed. And now let us enter into that quiet together, taking this moment to bring to mind those in your life you wish to remember. The singing bowl will invite us into the quiet and welcome us back. This prayer, inspired by Langston Hughes' words. May the world we know be blessed by love. And may peace bless every pathway, every journey. May all in our world know freedom. And may greed and selfishness and wretchedness be changed to generosity, especially for those most in need. We can do more than just wish for this. Where all races can share what this earth has to give and live in a relationship of harmony with the earth itself. Let us dream a world where all that would cause shame in others is banished. And we are the ones who can make this so. And joy like a pearl is given again and again to every human being in every land. A worthy dream for this world. And how can we make it our world? Amen. And blessed be. And Steve, talk to us about your experience with deep listening circles like this one. Connection to others is very important in my life. I'm lucky to be well connected to my family and have a number of long-term friends who are precious to me. But in the church community, I was feeling like I knew a great many people but just a few at a very deep level. And though I was fortunate to have been grandfathered into an extended family group which formed decades ago, I had missed all the various Thai groups and similar things which had taken place over the years. 
So last fall, I saw the sign-up notice for the deep listening groups that were starting up again. The time commitment wasn't huge, and that night was now free for me. So I signed up and looked forward to seeing this new process and learning much more about my church friends and acquaintances, including Cliff, who was in my class or group. It was quite illuminating hearing personal stories and perspectives from people in my small group, some who I had known for a long time and others who were new to me. We worked on specific questions and talked about which perspectives or ideas resonated most strongly for us and why. Sharing is without judgment or feedback, and I now feel much closer to those in my group. The ideas and focused engagement gave opportunities for self-reflection and discernment, which I don't always make time to do, though our theme journal each month also offers questions and things to consider I don't always take time to do those exercises. The structure of this small group gave me a fixed time each week for spiritual deepening and contemplation along with connection to others. Practicing deep listening without trying to give an answer or reply was a stretch for a number of us and gave us tools to use in other parts of our lives. At the conclusion of our session, we had a dinner with all the participants and most of their partners. It was surprising to learn that with only one exception, all of us had come from other parts of the country. Only one person was a native Californian, and many of us had Midwestern roots. Deeper connection is the board and stewardship focus for 2019-2020, based on input from the congregation. This program is supported with time from Reverend Morgan, and also the volunteer facilitators. Morgan helped develop and organize the iteration of this small group connection, trains the facilitators, and provides guidance and support along the way. Three new deep listening groups are forming in February. You can learn more and sign up in the social hall or plan to join us after this service today for a mini experience in the Sang House room. Knowing that this is flu season, you may choose to have a hand on a shoulder or take a hand and be, well, wild and crazy. Just want to point out that this service was chosen, this topic was chosen to be in direct support of the Interfaith Rotating Winter Shelter and um, the work that's being done with that, as well as Paul's Place. So it was an intentional choice to be of support. And... May we have a compassion that stands in awe of what each person carries. And may joy like a pearl attend the needs of all we meet. Whether May this be our dream for this whole world. And let this gathering say, Amen. 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 Go sign up for that shelter.